Morning, everyone. <clears throat> We're going to uh, kind of jump right in to this. Before we start, I just want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 1. And I want to pray and invite the Spirit of the living God to come and teach and transform us and convict us and convince us and do everything that I can't do with my limited words. Also, real quick little note, don't expect to follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to do a lot of Bible today, like a lot. Now, if you are like very advanced in your Bible flipping, uh, feel free to, to try to keep up. That would be awesome. But I kind of want you to absorb this because I think it's really, really important. So if you do, if you geek out and like following along, do that. If you want to take notes, take notes. Um, we're going to post all of these scriptures f for you this week anyway. So um, let me pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you're here. I pray that we would be mindful of the presence that's always present with us, God. I ask God as we get into this series about the Spirit, Spirit of the living God, that you would um, bring unity in our church. It's, it's very strange, God, to me to think that the Spirit, just the topic of the Holy Spirit divides so many churches. I pray that would not happen here. I pray, God, we would just give ourselves to curiosity and openness towards one another and the spirit of unity that binds us together in Christ. I also pray you would teach us. Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher. Jesus, you promised that the Spirit would be sent to be the teacher, the one who guides us into truth and the one who takes the words of Christ and applies them to our hearts and tells us of things yet to come. Do all of these things, Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Well, today we begin a new series that has been a few years in the making. It's a series on the Holy Spirit. We're in collaboration in the, with the Spirit series with our friends at the Garden Church in Long Beach. Uh, our friends down there, we've learned a lot from them. Darren, uh, the pastor there, one of the pastors there, uh, will be here in November teaching on this series. It's going to be really, really great. I want to, this series, I want to study the Holy Spirit as a subject and our hope is to experience the Holy Spirit as a living reality. So we're going to both study the Spirit as a subject, like a theological subject, and we're going to experience the Holy Spirit as a living reality. See, many churches are divided by how they view and experience the Spirit. Some churches are very good at Bible and theology, are very sound in their teaching and orthodox in their doctrine. But when it comes to the Trinity, it's more like Father, Son, and Holy Bible versus Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit and the work of the Spirit are pretty dismal oftentimes. It's not that these churches don't believe in the Spirit. They do believe in the Spirit. But oftentimes these churches that are very, very theologically heavy, the Spirit is bound to the pages of the Bible. And in order to keep things very orderly, they don't want, to get, they don't want things to get too crazy. So like the things of the Spirit, no, no, we just don't really, do it. we want to keep things orderly. The other side are churches that we might call maybe charismatic churches. And they have this like oftentimes a lot of amazing Holy Spirit stuff happening in their churches. But more often than not, the Bible is used as a launching pad to a coaching session or a pep talk. And theology tends to be, I mean, to be honest, to be kind of weak. 
And this is really sad to me because those two things were never meant to be separated. It was always supposed to be spirit and truth. It was always supposed to be theology, theology and experienced faith. It's always supposed to be the inbreaking kingdom of God and everything that that brings, and it is written, both of those things. And this series is our attempt at doing both, or doing both well, or at least saying here and now as a church, we don't think those two things should be separated, and we want to try to do both well. Now, there's some of you from the charismatic sort of stream, and you're here, and you found a home at reality, and you're like, you're like about to break loose. You're like, oh, just wait, just wait. And some of you from the more um, either high church or, or high, high, high Bible, view of Bible people are like, whoa, whoa, wait, time out. If this thing gets crazy here at this church, I, I liked it because you were just charismatic enough, but you weren't crazy. If you get crazy, I don't know. I'm gonna, I, don't, I don't know what will happen, right? So what we want to do is we want to understand as a church biblically who the Holy Spirit is and experience all the stuff the Spirit does when He comes in power. We want them both. We, what we don't want to see happen is like, oh, the Holy Spirit did that, but he's, He only is allowed to do that in the Bible. Like, that stuff is there, but not here. That, that is never, you'll, you'll never find that teaching in the Bible, by the way. It's, it's meant for us, the people of God. We're calling the series The Empowering Presence, a title taken from the theologian Gordon Fee's thousand-page book on the Holy Spirit. Highly recommended. Read, read, just read it. No, no big deal. Just uh, spend your time reading that. Um, or at least buy it so you have it. You're like, yeah, Holy Spirit. Look at that book. <laughs> Gordon Fee in his book says that the best definition of who the Spirit is is God's empowering presence. We'll talk at length about that definition of the Spirit next week, but this week I want to start with Jesus. And we'll get there but in a second, but let's first, I want you to turn to Genesis 1. Now, if you're fast, like I said again, you can write these scriptures down, or you could turn there if you're really, really fast. But for most of us, I want us to absorb this. So Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the, fa the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Okay, this is page one of your Bibles, right? This is opening sentence of the entire Bible, opening sentences. And notice that the Spirit is right there. In the mix, as one who is hovering over the waters, the word is a very rare word in the Old Testament, describing an eagle mother protectively hovering over her young. And this hovering is seen metaphorically as a motion of a bird. And this symbol becomes the symbol of the Holy Spirit, the dove, later on in the New Testament. Basically, this is where it comes from, right here in Genesis 1.1. So right in the opening sentences of the Bible, we see the Spirit of God at work. But here's the deal with the Old Testament. Here's the deal concerning the Spirit in the Old Testament. You might want to write this down. The Old Testament was an age of visitation. When it comes to, and when it concerns the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Old Testament was an age of visitation. The Spirit would come and work, but then pull back into the background, into the shadows. Sometimes He would show up and step in to do something pretty amazing, but then right back into the background again. 
the Spirit visited, he would come. He would come upon a prophet. He would come upon a judge. He would come upon a priest. He would come upon a king. And then he would depart. He would leave. This was an age, again, of visitation. This is why David prayed in the psalm, the psalm, his psalm of repentance in Psalm 51. He says, do not cast me from your presence after he's repented. He's like, God, cast me not from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. See, David saw the Spirit of God leave King Saul before him. The Old Testament is, was a, an age of visitation, not an age of habitation. But there was a day coming, and the prophets of the Old Testament saw, there was a day coming, not of visitation, but indeed of habitation. There was a coming age hallmarked by the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit would fill, would come upon, would live in the people of God, in the people of God. And this age, and this is important, this age, the prophets wrote in the Old Testament, would be ushered in by someone they called the anointed one. Someone they called that, that would be anointed by the Spirit. The new age of the Spirit would be ushered in by the Spirit anointed one. Now, the, the anointed one, that, the Hebrew word for that is Messiah. The Greek word for that is Christ, where we, where we get the word Christ. Here, here's one of the texts of, of many, okay? Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Okay, stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's dad. So basically what Isaiah is prophesying here is that the story of David is going to get a reboot, right? It's like Star Wars sort of thing, right? It's a whole reboot of the story of David. From the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now there's someone coming from from David's line, but a David story retold. And this one, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel, counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And so the prophets saw a day coming when there was a one who was coming who would be anointed by the spirit. Again, Isaiah 42, another place. Here is my servant, Isaiah the prophet writes, whom I will uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So now there's this new prophetic title given to Messiah. And this prophetic title is the servant. Not only will be, he be a king in the line of David, but he will be, now, he'll be a servant. This is a, this is a brand new prophetic title that I need you to hold on to because it comes up later. So the one that's coming will be a king and he, the Holy Spirit will be upon him, and he'll be a servant, and the Holy Spirit will be upon him. When this anointed one comes, he will usher in a new era. He will bring in a new era where the Spirit would be lavishly poured out on all flesh, not just prophets, priests, kings, and sometimes judges, but on all flesh, crossing racial, social, even gender divides. Look at what Joel says, the prophet Joel. Joel 2, 28 and 29. And afterwards, Joel prophesies in the Old Testament, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Notice that this new era will also be marked by an abundance of the prophetic. So the Spirit of God will be poured out on everyone, and then a new age of prophecy will come out. New age where people hear God, see God, know God. There will be dreams, there will be visions, servants, men, women. It doesn't matter who. It just, he will start pouring out his Spirit. 
Not only that, but the prophets started to see a new reality on the horizon where the Spirit would come and actually renew the heart. And this is something that's such a, um, a, a turn in the story in the Old Testament. See, the heart was the problem with Israel since the Exodus. You guys remember the Exodus when we studied that? The problem was they were stubborn in their hearts. They had a hard heart. So God delivers them and does all these miraculous and amazing things. But in the wilderness, they have a hard heart. They have a stubborn heart. And that's their main problem. So what would God do with a stiff-necked, hard heart people? And the prophets say, well, there's a day coming when God will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. How will he do that? Ezekiel 36. 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Israel could not follow God's decrees. Just they, they see God do this miraculous thing, and then they can't do it. And they're hard. Their heart is hard. They can't get there. And God says, what I'm going to do one day is coming. And by the way, this is connected to the anointed one. This is connected to the spirit. I'm going to remove your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And then I'm going to put my spirit in you. And then you're going to know my ways. And you're going to know me. You're going to know me intimately. And you're going to be able to follow, be very careful to follow my word, to follow my laws, to follow who I am. Are you, are you guys still with me? Okay, you guys following along. Okay. And at the end of the Old Testament prophets, they, they waited. They waited for a new era to come. An age where the anointed one, the one who is anointed by the Spirit, would usher in a new age of the Spirit. And so they waited, and they waited, and they waited. They waited for 400 years. The 400-year wait is basically the gap between your Old Testament and New Testament. That gap that you go, the Old Testament ends, and then there's like a page that says the New Testament, and you flip that page, <laughs> 400 years <laughs> of silence, no prophets, no prophecy, nothing, nothing. And they longed for the coming Messiah, the anointed one, who would bring in the new age of the Spirit. And when you turn the page and you turn to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, which are all accounts of what happens after that 400 years of silence, it starts by the Holy Spirit preparing the way of the Lord and the womb for the Lord. That's how it opens up. God starts by sending a prophet. At the end, the very last chapter of uh, the very last verse, actually, of the Old Testament. In our Old Testament is Malachi. At the very last part, it says that God will send someone in the spirit of Elijah and he will draw sons and daughters to God. Like, this is what God will do. He'll send someone. And it opens up with Zechariah and Elizabeth who can't have kids and they're getting older and the angel visits them and the angel says, you're going to have a son, your name is John, and I'm going to fill him with the Holy Spirit in utero. That's rad. Like, in in the womb, to be filled with the Spirit. So that, and and this, this one coming is going to come in the Spirit of Elijah, and he's going to prepare the way for Messiah. Okay, so that's what happens. And then an angel visits Mary, and this is where things get. This, this, we don't give Mary enough credit in the Protestant church. She is absolutely amazing. You might know the story. An angel comes to Mary and says, will you, have a, you will have a child 
and the child that you have will be great, and the child will be called the Son of the Most High, and God will give him the throne of David, and his kingdom will never end. And she says, how? I'm a virgin. And this is the answer, Luke 1.35. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit, by the way, do you see the language of Genesis 1 there? The Holy Spirit hovering, overshadowing, fluttering. Do you, you see that same imagery? The Holy Spirit will do what, he, what He's done before, Genesis 1.1. This is basically a reboot of the story again. The Holy Spirit's coming. He will overshadow you, and you, the, and then something's going to happen. Well, we'll talk about what's going to happen in a second. And then Mary says this, famously says this, I am the Lord's servant. Remember I told you to hang on to Isaiah? Remember I said there was a new, there was a new title for the anointed one? He would be called the servant of the Lord. So here you have Jesus who, who says, who basically is um, who lives before God forever, is one with God, and says, I will, Philippians 2 says, he says, I will lay aside my deity, and I will become a servant, and I will, I, 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 I will take the, uh, the, the role, the job of redeeming humanity. Philippians 2 talks about this, how he laid aside, how he laid it all aside, his glory, and did not consider it something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, became born of a human, and tied to death, even death on the cross. That's Philippians 2. And Mary is the same way. Will you have this child? And Mary says, I'm your servant. Matthew's account is a little bit more to the point. Matthew 1.18 says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, here, here it is. Jesus is conceived by supernatural action, but he is not merely filled with the Spirit. His very being is attributed to the Spirit. The very reason why Jesus becomes flesh and blood is because of the Spirit. See, when we think of Jesus, the God-man coming in flesh, we often think of the Father who sent the Son, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. We think of Jesus who emptied himself to become a servant, Philippians 2. I just recited that. And these both are very, very true. However, the divine effectiveness in God's becoming flesh, the divine effectiveness in God himself becoming flesh was the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit. Simon Ponsonby, a scholar from Oxford, says this, It is the Holy Spirit as the immediate divine executive the agent of God's will who weds the eternal son with mortal humanity. The creative spirit who hovered over creation overshadows Mary, creating, conceiving, and connecting God and blood, making out of Mary's matter what was not before. The spirit performs a regenerative or recreative work, not merely a creative work. A new human life born of Mary is the old humanity from Adam's seed, which is joined to the eternal divinity of the Son by the action of the Spirit. This is how the Spirit sets this whole thing up. He takes two servants, the servant of the Lord and Mary a servant. And he is saying, what what Ponsonby is saying is that the preexistent divine Son did this by his own, own choice. 
The, the son emptying himself out, became a servant. Mary, by her own choice, became the Lord's servant. Both of those things are amazing. But it was the spirit who fused the two together, who took the son of God, who said, I will be a servant, and Mary saying, I will be God's servant. And the Holy Spirit took the two and said, I'm going to make out of this thing a beautiful God-man. And it's the spirit who regenerates. It's the spirit who recreates the eternal son of God into our historical humanity. Now, this is huge and has huge implications later on when this Holy Spirit is given to God's people. Because the very essence of what the Spirit does is regenerative. He makes things that were not come to life. He recreates. He literally takes something that's impossible and makes it possible. Are you guys still with me? Spirit, right? Okay. So Jesus empties himself of all his divine prerogatives and takes on the form of a servant. This is Philippians 2. And by doing this, Jesus decided not to make use of divine attributes independently, but experience what, would, what it would mean to be fully, truly human. And thus, the, Jesus lived a life completely dependent upon the Spirit. This is shown to us explicitly when Jesus begins his public ministry. So Jesus prophesied about, then Jesus, born of the Spirit, but then when he comes into ministry, he gets baptized. He gets baptized by a guy named John the Baptist, who we talked about, right, Elizabeth and, and um, Zechariah's son. When John's ministry begins, everyone's gathered around John, and this is what John says to everyone gathered around his ministry of baptizing in the Jordan River. John said, I baptize you with water, but one is, who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He was speaking of Jesus, by the way. Jesus said, he said, Jesus will baptize you just the same way that I'm baptizing you here in the water. You're going all the way under into the water. There is one coming who will take you all the way into the Holy Spirit. More on the baptism of the Holy Spirit later. When Jesus is baptized, something pretty remarkable happens. Luke 3.21 says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, the heavens were opened up. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Like a dove. He didn't say it was a dove. It wasn't like this dove flapping. And he's like, is that a pigeon dove? Freaking whatever. Like, not that. Okay? Like, a, bo- the Spirit in bodily form comes fluttering. Same imagery of Genesis 1. And a voice came from heaven. Everyone heard this voice. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Okay, so Jesus gets baptized. This is the beginning of his ministry. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, and the voice of identity as the beloved is spoken over him. You are my beloved son. And then he is given the authority of being God's son. You are my son. Not only are you my beloved son, but you're my son. This is both intimacy and authority that are very much connected to the Holy Spirit. Hold on to that. That's pretty key. Intimacy and authority. But John's gospel notes something very important here. That's, that's really, really key. John 1, 32 says, Then John gave this testimony. This is what John said. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Do you see the difference there? Remain. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is God's chosen one remain. Remember the Old Testament was an age of visitation. Now the age of habitation is breaking in when the Spirit will remain. 
when the Spirit will stay, He will come upon us and live. Jesus is ushering that in right here at His baptism. And then right after His baptism, Jesus is driven into the wilderness. Guess, who did it? Who does it? The Spirit. Matthew, Luke, Mark. This is all their accounts, right? Then the Spirit, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Luke, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark, he's a little bit more assertive. At once the Spirit drove him, in Greek that word is drove him out. At once the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The point is this. The Spirit at this time leads Jesus. And not directly into temptation, but into the wilderness to be tempted. And in the wilderness, Jesus fasted 40 days. And here's the point of his fasting. Jesus had already emptied himself of his divine rights. Now through fasting, he was emptying himself of his human strength. At the end of 40 days, Philippians 2 said Jesus had already laid aside his his rights as God. But what he's doing in fasting is he's laying aside, he's emptying himself of all of his human strength. So he has nothing He had to be completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. And the temptations, every single one of them, was to test and reveal whether Jesus will use his power for his own end, his divine power. Would he pick back up that divine thing that he laid down? Would he pick that back up? Would he use his divineness for his own prerogatives? Or would he obey the Spirit? And every single one of his temptations tested that, whether he will depend on the Spirit And Jesus does not use his anointing for himself, not even a single time during the temptations. By the way, this is a second garden scene. This is the second Adam coming, and this one's perfectly obedient. Jesus is absolutely, perfectly dependent on God. Jesus does not use his anointing for himself. And if you want to read the full account, you can read it in Matthew. And the Spirit is not grieved. And now the Spirit can be released in power. And so Jesus comes out of the wilderness. Luke says this. He comes out of temptation. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Completely dependent on the Spirit. Jesus steps out, fully human, steps out in the power of the Spirit. So the question is this. What does that look like? What does it look like for someone to be completely under the power of the Spirit? What is the ministry and the power of the Spirit look like? The way the gospel writers portray this is by saying that the kingdom of God is breaking in. Now, kingdom of God, we don't use kingdom, and we don't live in England or anything, we live in America. So, like, what does kingdom mean, right? Think of it like this. Kingdom of God equals the rule of God. When the kingdom of God breaks in, that means the rule of God breaks in. When God rightly orders things, everything, even the prayers of the people, like justice, like rightly ordered Law and order, rightly ordered justice, rightly ordered power, rightly ordered healing, rightly ordered vision, rightly ordered like gastrointestinal things, like everything, rightly ordered. Where everything comes under the rule of God. Well, what does that look like? Well, the Spirit, once again, sets up a very cool way of showing us. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. Check this out. Right after the temptation, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. Basically, Luke is saying, this is Luke's way of saying, this kind of just, quote, happened. It didn't just happen, but he's kind of open to making it seem like that. Like, this is kind of just normal day. 
normal Sabbath day. He goes to the synagogue, and Jesus stood up to read. And a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And enrolling it, he found a place where it's written. Oh, by the way, there was one more Isaiah passage that talks about the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Messiah. And it was Isaiah 61, and I didn't read it to you because it's right here. The, the, that day, the reading was this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus is reading this in synagogue. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fasted, fastened on him. And he began saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your, hear in your hearing. This is like, drop the scroll. I don't know if that he probably invented drop the scroll. He just like rolled it up like, this is, happened. Did it. Like this is what boss status. Like this is it. This is it. He reads this thing and he's, what Jesus said, okay, by the way, birth, right? Baptism, temptation, leaves in the power of the spirit, happens to go to a synagogue, here's a scroll, Jesus, would you read it? Sure, I'll read it. The Spirit of the Lord, oh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> this text is the messianic mandate which details the purposes of the Spirit in and through Jesus. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, everything you see me doing for the next three years is all right here. Under the power of the Spirit, I will do all of these things. The Spirit is upon me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. He is upon me to preach and proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim freedom to those who are captive or those who are prisoners. Those who are bound. So Jesus' ministry will be one of proclaiming good news. Of talking about the gospel. Of living out the gospel. Of being the gospel. He is the gospel. Of proclaiming freedom to those who are bound up and captive to all of Satan's lies and deceptions, all of the state's power, all of religious power. He's bringing freedom to people. Recovery of sight to the blind. He literally physically heals people. And not just that, this word blind has spiritual and mental implications as well. To set the oppressed free, the word oppressed here is literally those broken in pieces. For people who are shattered into a million pieces, and that could be because of their infirmity, infirmaries, is that a word? I don't know. That could be because of, their, because of religious bondage. That could be for so many reasons. Jesus sets them free. And I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is a reference to the Jewish jubilee theme, when all debts are canceled and all those enslaved are set free. He's like, I'm here to set people who are enslaved, people who are, have debts to where they can't even pay them, I'm here to set them all free. Again, Simon Ponzinby, the Holy Spirit orchestrates the event where the Spirit-inspired Scripture is brought to the Spirit-filled Jesus who reads of the Spirit-filled ministry, ushering in the eschatological age of the Spirit. That is absolutely insane. Are you, are you with me? Are you still with me? Do you see what the Spirit's doing? How the Spirit's setting all of this up. Like he's doing all of this. Brings Jesus to the world by the Spirit. How Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit's creating Jesus at his birth. Baptism at his Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit at his temptation, the Holy Spirit in and through his ministry. The question is, if you had to choose, don't answer this out loud, just answer this, answer this in, your, in your heart. If you had to choose between Jesus living with you physically or having the Holy Spirit live in you, which would you choose? If you had to choose between Jesus living physically with you or having the Holy Spirit live in you, which would you choose? It's not a trick question. Answer, answer honestly. Just answer it in your heart, in your mind, or however that works. Now, I imagine most of you would say, I mean, we're, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. You're like, I think you're going to trick me, but I kind of want to answer Jesus with me physically. Like, physically Jesus. Like, text Jesus. Like, I want to do that, right? Like, FaceTime Jesus. I want physical Jesus. Now, I think that's because most of us are addicted to materiality. Like, this is like, this is Madonna, right? I'm a material girl, live in a material world. Like, that's a thing. Like, well, that's us, right? We are all consumed by what we can see, what we can touch, smell, taste. The materiality of this life is oftentimes what we're focused on at the expense of the immaterial. This is why character development is so hard. Like, it's sometimes character development is immaterial, and it's really hard to do that. We're often so much focused on the materiality of the world. And so, I think we would all choose the physical Christ over the immaterial spirit. But here's the thing. Jesus wouldn't. If you ask Jesus that same question, he would say that the Holy Spirit in you is better than me with you. Actually, he did say that. <laughs> at the end of his ministry, Jesus full of, at the end of Jesus' ministry, full of proclaiming the gospel, healings, powerful teachings, miraculous feedings, etc., he's setting up his departure with his disciples. He's setting up his departure with those closest to him. And in John 15, 16, he says this, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you can't even talk about where I'm going because you're so filled with grief because I said these things. Jesus is saying they're filled with grief. That they couldn't even ask, they couldn't even say, wait, 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 where are you leaving? Where are you going? They're like, now who wouldn't be filled with grief? If you're with Jesus for three years, Jesus leaving would set you at a huge disadvantage. Without Jesus with you, who will raise the dead? Without Jesus with you physically, who will heal the sick? Without Jesus with you physically, who will minister and show people what God is like? Without Jesus with you, how in the world will people know what the kingdom of God breaking in looks like? Jesus, if you leave, we will be at a loss. But he goes on to say this. But Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Because unless I go away, the advocate, the paraclete, that, that's, that's another, by the way, in ch chapter 14, he talks about the 15, the paraclete being the Holy Spirit. Unless I go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, it is better that I go. It is actually to your advantage. It's to your good. It's for your good that I go away. We would go, no, 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 it's not for our good. It would be very bad for you to leave us, Jesus, physically. Very bad. Jesus is like, no, no, it's very good that I leave you. It's actually for your good. It's actually better. It's better that the Holy Spirit lives in you than I live with you. Now, I'm going to be honest. I don't really see this, and I, didn't ha I haven't really seen this until my studies in the Holy Spirit. 
I used to think that the cross was all, and I, I still do, by the way, but the cross was all about redeeming us from our sin. It was all about Jesus dying in our place so that we can have life with him, eternal life, to be forgiven of our sin and the wrath of God against our sin to be atoned for. And I don't think that's wrong. I think that's very much right. I think that's, that is it. But what's the point of that? To what end do we have forgiveness? To what end do we have hearts that are new? To what end? And I'm starting to see that all of Jesus' ministry was really about the Spirit living in us. Jesus was actually preparing a way for our hearts to be renewed so that the Spirit of the living God could come and live in us. That's what Jesus, was, that's what Jesus really, really wanted. Jesus, born by the Spirit, lived the life of the Spirit, showing us what the ministry of the Spirit looks like, and then couldn't wait for the result of his work on the cross to be realized, which is we can now have the Spirit. He was like, I'm going away, I'm going to the cross, and when I do, you can have the Spirit, guys. You, men and women, you get the Spirit. That's how I'm, I'm even here. I'm here by the Spirit. That's how I even do anything I do, by the Spirit. I'm led by the Spirit, sent to the wilderness by the Spirit, overcome by the Spirit, do ministry in the Spirit. All this inbreaking kingdom of God stuff is all the Spirit, and I cannot wait to die for you on the cross. Philippians says, for the joy set before him. Jesus goes to the cross so that your hearts can be renewed so that you can receive the Spirit. See, through the cross, we are restored to God and may receive the Spirit. John writes, when Jesus dies on the cross, he gave up the Spirit, John 19.30. Now, your translation and my translation says he gave up his Spirit, but that's not what the Greek says. In Greek, it says, when he died, he gave up the Spirit. Symbolically, John is showing that, the, that it is the Holy Spirit, not Jesus' personal Spirit, which is being released when Jesus dies on the cross. Then, after resurrection, by the way, just take a wild stab. Who raises Christ from the dead? The wild, just. <laughs> Romans 8.11. The same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in you. Okay, so after resurrection, the resurrection was done by the Spirit, by the way, Jesus meets his disciples and blesses them, and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. See, the cross is the fount from where the forgiveness of sins is purchased and from where the Spirit of God is poured out. Jesus then says not to leave Jerusalem. We don't have time to get into this today. This is coming up. Don't leave Jerusalem. I want you to wait for the gift of the Father. The Father wants to give you a gift now, which is the Spirit who will come upon you. And then you will receive power to carry out the ministry I began. You will receive power to carry out the ministry I began. We'll get into Acts and see what happens when the Spirit falls on the church later on. But all this brings us to the question, what is this all about? What is following Jesus all about? What is salvation that Jesus brings all about? What is the love of God for us all about? What is this all about? And the answer is, God through his spirit, that God through his spirit would live in us, and by his spirit we would know who we are as the beloved and carry out God's work in this world through the power of the spirit. At Jesus' baptism, he is given both who he is, the beloved, and authority as God's son to do ministry. The same thing happens when the Spirit comes upon us. He speaks of, over us our identity as sons and daughters of God. And 
gives us power, the authority to work in this world through his power of the Spirit. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but we kind of backed into the Holy Spirit series by the way of Exodus and the way of Everyday Mystic series. Now, I will tell you before God, I did not plan this. The Holy Spirit is super sneaky. <laughs> it's going to look like I planned it, but I, we did not plan this. This year, was the, uh, the theme was cultivating intimacy with God, and I wanted to, we wanted to do a book, and so we decided on Exodus. And when I first started the book of Exodus, I think I remember telling you guys the very first couple of teachings, and specifically I remember telling the pre-gathering prayer team, I don't know what this series will do in the life of our church, but I'm really excited about it. And what that series did was it primed our hearts for when God delivers his people, and they're at this moment, if you remember, where God's like, listen, I can't, I, I, I can't keep going with you guys. You guys are hard-hearted. So I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to give you all the stuff, but I myself won't go with you. And Moses is like, no, no, we're not doing that. If you don't go with us, we're not going. Your presence is everything. You guys remember that teaching? Your presence is everything. We just want your presence. That's what Moses said. And God says, okay, I will go with you. That's how it started, and then, it, then we went into the mystic series, which was all about practicing union with God, like living in constant union with God. By the way, I, I, I just wanted to do a series on cultivating intimacy, and it turned into this everyday mystic series, which I was really happy we, we did. But it's all about mystical union. How, how are we united with God, though? By His Spirit. How are we able to hear the voice of God? By His Spirit. See, what I'm saying, I guess what I'm saying, church, is that we're ready for this. The Holy Spirit, I wanted to do this series, honestly, two years ago, and we weren't there. We weren't ready. We were not ready for this series, but we're ready for this. We're ready for the Spirit to come upon this church in a fresh way and in a new way. We're ready for deeper intimacy and greater authority in God's kingdom work. I believe, as a church, we are ready. This past week, I turned 40. Yeah, thank you. One of the gifts that I gave to myself was <laughs> facial things. Like a toner. You know, like, you know, like a toner? You know how that... I'm like, I'm 40. I might as well try to keep this. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. But I got it. So last night after washing my face and everything, I put it on. And I'm thinking about the series. And I'm thinking about like, like I'm preoccupied. And I think I have put the lid on. Oh, by the way, this is toner I got. It, it's, it wasn't expensive, but it was not not expensive. You know? It's like one of those. So it's kind of valuable. So I thought I put the lid on, but I didn't. So I tried to pick it up to put it away. And it spilled. Just. And I was so mad. Like cuss word was on the tip my tongue, like just right there. I was so mad. I was like, I, and I said out loud, I'm so angry. And I grab Kleenex to wipe it up. And as soon as I do, I realize how much has spilled because just the Kleenex just sopped up all of this stuff. And as soon as that happened, God spoke to me. And I know God spoke to me. I know it was God because I was too mad to, to, it to be me. <laughs> and God said, what's poured out can't be put back in. And he said, are you, are you ready for this? Are you ready? Are, if I pour the, my spirit out on this church, you can't put it back. You can't like, can we put some back? Like, no. 
Like, what I pour out, you can't put back in. Are you ready? And I honestly was like, yes, Lord, we're ready. I honestly believe that we're ready for this series. One of my hopes for this series, I think my greatest hope for this series, is that you and I would begin to minister to one another and minister to those in the city in the Spirit. I think we have a wonderful learning culture in this church. You guys are some of the, like seriously, I, I've, I've spoke at other places. You're one of the funnest churches to teach the Bible to. I hear that from anyone who comes here. We have a great learning culture. We have a beautiful and powerful worship culture. My desire is this. My desire for our church is to have a strong ministry culture where we minister one to another, where ministry wouldn't just happen from the stage here, but it would happen across the aisles and the rows. Some of the most powerful things that I hear, the stories that I hear, are when someone's sitting and God gives a word for someone who's sitting next to them, and they just turn to them and like, I, I think God has something for you, and this, this is it, can I pray for you? Like that stuff, you don't understand how powerful that is. I want to see that stoked in our church. I want to see I want to see us filled with the Spirit for intimacy, for a greater sense of who we are, our identity, for greater authority over sin and in God's work in this city. And I honestly believe, church, that we are ready. As we close, would you stand? And we're going to sit still for a while.